I'm not trying to build some empire where I need to be liked by as many people as possible. I just want to be myself and and be myself publicly until I don't anymore. <laughs> and then I'll just shut down all my social media accounts. <laughs> That's Lauren Fleshman, and this is episode 30 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Mario Fraley, and this week I've got Lauren Fleshman. Lauren is a retired pro athlete. She's a two-time national champion on the track. She's represented the United States numerous times at global championships. She finished seventh in the world in the 5,000 meters in 2011, and I am super excited to have her on the show this week. We covered a lot of ground uh, in our conversation. I think you'll really enjoy it. We talked about coaching talked about the different coaches that she's worked with throughout her career, what she's learned from them, and applied to her own coaching practice with Team Little Wing, which is based out of Bend, Oregon. Uh, We talked about where her own running is at right now. Even though she's a retired professional athlete, she's still running. She's still doing workouts. She hit the track with Shalane Flanagan just a few weeks before our conversation. So she's still getting after it um, at her own speed these days. We also talked about what she would tell her younger self. She wrote a blog post about that. Uh, a year ago, and it was more a conversation with her her high school self. I wanted to know what she would tell college Lauren uh, when she graduated and started her professional career. We talked about the future of the sport of professional running and if it has any vitality to it. We talked about Picky Bars, a company she founded with her husband, Jesse Thomas, and professional marathoner, Steph Bruce. Uh, we talked about how they manage that in their household uh, so it doesn't totally dominate their lives and a lot more. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So before I continue rambling, please enjoy my chat with Lauren Fleshman. Cool. Well, looks like we are we are rolling pretty good here. We've got sound coming out of both mics and I think that is all we need. So Okay. Lauren Fleshman, thank you so much for having me here to your home and welcome to the Morning yeah. Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So more than anything else, I'm really curious what you've been up to <laughs> recently. Uh, so why don't we start there? What I've been up to recently. Let's see. Um, lots of picky bar stuff. We Picky bars kind of ebbs and flows in its intensity for me. You know, it's we're in year nine and I was super, super involved in everything for about the first six of those years. And then I've tried to sort of extract myself from all but the things that like I do best. Um, and mayday situations since it's a family business, it's like you have to have all hands on deck sometimes, but I really enjoy the branding and marketing stuff, product creation, you know, that stuff's awesome. But the, all the like operational stuff and supply chain and that stuff in management, it's like really stressful for me. So, and it's, I think it's better. Oh, I know it's better for Jesse and I as a married couple who owns a business together to not have tons of our job overlapping with one another. Cause it can be, there can be a tendency to just be a two headed monster when you're like a married couple that has a business or you just kind of do everything and talk about every single aspect of the business together rather than sort of dividing some stuff and having a nice healthy Venn diagram area that overlaps. So we have more of that now, which is good. But, um, with changing to a new manufacturer, with upgrading all our recipes, redesigning our packaging, sort of like figuring out how do we relaunch this and tell our story, you know, in a new way. Um, I was a lot more involved than I had been. So we got that done. It's out there. Um, the bars are doing great. The oatmeal is doing great. 
So yeah, that's, I've been doing a lot of that. And now that is going to slow down a little bit for me and writing and coaching are my two big things that I'm heading into, uh, you know, the end of this year and all of 2019. So with coaching specifically is project little wing still your kind of main outlet for that? Yeah. So I coach, um, I've coached two women this past year, the Lawrence sisters, Collier and Mel, who I've known since they were in high school, uh, which is pretty cool. I met them at Foot Locker when I was one of the pro athletes that was brought back and just loved them. And so it was really cool to get a chance to have that come full circle and coach them for the last few years. And now we're bringing on two more athletes and uh, they're younger and kind of just getting their start. So it's going to be super exciting. How big is the group in total right now? Four. It's four. Yep. That's a nice size. Yeah, it's good. I think four to six is pretty much the maximum that I could handle. Mm-hmm. You know, how many years have you been coaching now? I started in 2013. I guess that's five. Okay. Yeah. What, what are some of the biggest things that you've learned as a coach that weren't <laughs> necessarily apparent to you as an athlete? Oh, I guess as an athlete. well, I shouldn't say you, I'll speak from my own experience. As an athlete, I tended to look at my experience and my successes or failures as like a case study that I thought I could apply to other people. Right. And then now I have a better understanding of that was a, you know, sample size of N equals one and that there are different types of athletes, different animals, you know, and um, I, I started to figure that out near the end of my career when I worked with Mark Rowland, Oregon Track Club Elite with Nick Simmons on the team and Nicole Teeter on the team and me and a few others, it was like we had, in particular though, those three, when we were overlapping, we had very different skill sets, sets, but we had a matched intensity. Like we had very similar confidence, but yeah, the types of workouts we sh- we were shining in, the way we operated in the gym, the types of body work we needed, like the way we got there, to the starting line at nationals was very different. So I started to get an appreciation for it then. And, um, and then as a coach that helped me because I, I knew that I needed to figure out what kind of athlete I'm dealing with before I sort of plug them into any program. And then as far as learning what to do with different types of athletes, that's something that I just had to learn as I went, you know, um, so I may have acknowledged they were different than me, but then, okay, now what do you do with that? (laughs) How have the different coaches that you've worked with throughout your career informed your coaching philosophy and style? Uh, They've been very different ways. Um, Let's see. High school coach, Dave DeLong, Canyon High. He he created one of those environments with over 100 kids on the team. It was like the cool team to be on. We had a huge range of abilities and people felt important and needed from the athlete trying to break eight minutes in the mile their senior year to, you know, the team trying to win state. Like it was a pretty magical team to get a start and running in. And so from him, I learned that what you, um, what you praise and reward are the characteristics that are going to blossom in the athletes. And if all you praise and reward is winning, then you create a really weird environment when people are either injured, um, just having an off season or, you know, when they can't win, it's, you know, things fall apart. So I guess I learned that from him and I didn't really realize I'd learned that from him till much later. College, um, I had Vin Lanana as our head coach and Dina Evans as our assistant coach. And I learned a lot from them. Um, environment again, but in a different way. I mean, very champion focused for the environment. And, uh, 
And also, I guess I learned, that's where I first learned the principles of how to train a group and how to take different types of athletes, but try to get them working together on the track as often as you can. So he would take our top 1500 runners at the time, which was Gabe Jennings and Michael Stember, and try to get them on the track to work out with Brad and Brent Hauser, who were 10,000 meter guys, guys, first, second NCAAs. And three of those guys made the Olympic team, you know, in the same year. And the big reason was because as often as possible, he had them around each other um, and, and didn't segment them into groups away from each other. So they got to create like a group fire, you know, and that recognition when they looked at each other's eyes of like, you want what I want. Um, and that goes a long way. So that is what I have taken with me into my coaching in my group. And, um, at least from that era. And I worked with Vin for quite a bit of my pro career too. Um, I think from my time in Mammoth, I had a really brief time. I didn't, I wasn't there long enough to learn a lot of things that like, um, that I use today, but I learned a lot of things. I tr- I made some mistakes that I try not to make. Yeah. And I saw people making mistakes of kind of like, oh, we're going to be pro. So we have to go to this next level. And they were just hammering themselves. We had quite a few athletes that left. Kind of, we came in one year and like left within a year or two. Was that with Terrence? Mm-hmm. Okay. And he obviously is a really great coach and he's coached a lot of super good people. Um, this was his first year with the group. And we, and we also just had like our unique assemblage of people and personalities. And I think we were all really over eager. And you're all professionals at that point too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess from there, I learned some cautionary tales about what happens if you don't check your drive a little bit. And if you sort of think that just because we get, you know, this was when training in groups was not ubiquitous. Like we were one of the only groups. And so we didn't really know how to do it. And there weren't a lot of examples and social media wasn't a thing. And I think I believed if we just got a bunch of fast people together that magically we'd be able to do these next level workouts that we'd basically be like the Kenyans and Ethiopians. That all we needed to do was just put the best together and this other thing would just happen. Like a door would open, you know, and we'd be better. And I think, I mean, for me, I just kind of drove myself into the ground and I saw some other people do it too. Yeah. And then it's easy um, to do. It is. Because someone's feeling good every day. Yeah. Someone is feeling good. And we had, you know, one of the best in the history of the world and Dina Castor, who was chasing the American record in the marathon and got it during that time. So we had this example of, and then Jen Rines, who was also in her thirties at that point, we were, you know, in our early twenties and we're watching these two veterans with, you know, tens of thousands of miles more on their legs than us. And they were able to handle a cumulative load that we couldn't just jump into. So that was kind of a, also like, wow, it was, it was awesome to be able to watch them work. It was a real honor to work alongside Dina and watch her work when she was um, going after her dreams at that point. So, and then the last coach I had was coach Mark Rowland and he was awesome. Yeah. He was like a perfect coach for me at the time of life I was in. Just, I was firmly an adult in my late twenties and I knew who I was. I knew what my strengths and weaknesses were. He very much coaches people to be adults. He gives them a lot of freedom. He's, um, you're sort of fully cooked enough at that age where you're not going to dramatically change what kind of athlete someone is. So you have to learn to coach the athlete you have. And Mark is really great at that. He's also really good at revitalizing injured athletes. I learned a lot about doing that from him. I came back and had a very unlikely comeback and had my best years when I was working with him. 
um, to stay on coaching just for a little while yeah. longer. I know as of this conversation, you're in the midst of a social media sabbatical of sorts. You told me you, <laughs> you were off, you've been off Twitter for what, like seven days or yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how much web reading you've been doing, but <laughs> did you catch Aaron Strout's article in Outside Magazine about female coaches this past week? I did not. Okay. Yeah. Um, Tell that, me about it. That'd probably be helpful. But the, <laughs> the gist of it was, why are there so few female coaches, um, specifically mm-hmm. in the NCAA? And then mentioned a little bit about what Shalane's next step will be when her career is over. And you know what Shalane said, she's like, look, no one offered me this job. She's like, Nike didn't say, hey, we'd love for you to coach for us. Yeah. I, I went and said, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's more in there about you know, not that male coaches are, are bad. And Shalane talked about how like Jerry and Pascal have, you know, she's been learning from them the entire time mm-hmm. that she is, a, um, well, that she's been an athlete and that's kind of preparing her for that next step. But the gist of it was, why are there so few female coaches and various people chimed in with why they thought that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. Why do you think that is the case? Why are there so few female coaches in the sport of running, certainly at the collegiate level, but even beyond that? Yeah, I mean, I do think part of it's representation. So you have to see it to be it. You know, most people need to see it to be it. Not everybody. There's pioneers and everything, but um, that certainly was an issue for me. I never envisioned myself being able to be a coach because I didn't really feel like I had a lot of head coach female examples. The women that I saw coaching were primarily in assistant roles, underpaid doing the vast majority of the emotional labor and administrative labor. And this is still super common in the NCAA where like you have a head male coach who works mostly with the men. Then you have a dramatically lower paid female who's in charge of the day-to-day for the women's team. And it's bizarre. It's bizarre that that's like still the way it is, but it is. Um, there, are ex- there are obviously exceptions. Marisa Powell getting the job at Washington as the head coach was like a hallelujah moment for me because she was was a classmate of mine at Stanford. And so was Andy, you know, and when they first came out, Andy was definitely the like one unafraid to step into the head coach aspirations role. And Marisa was very much like the assistant, you know, and in her mind and heart, I always saw the fire of someone who knew she could be a head coach, but the environment wasn't really like built for that. So she was sort of automatically shepherded into a subordinate role really. And, um, but what she really did versus what her title was from the beginning, she was head coach material and she was going after it. I mean, I was in Eugene when she was there and when Andy was there and they were both very much head coaches before the titles reflected that. So it was cool to see her like land that job. And, um, but yeah, it's not, especially in the NCAA, it is not a family friendly job for men or women. And we still and live in a time to that. As yeah. Well. We still live in a time where we think, we still think, Oh, no big deal. If men miss out on a huge portion of their children's childhood experiences, like there's, I feel bad for men that that's still the cultural norm. Now that I have children and I see how involved Jesse is and like the rewards of getting to do that as an equal partner are like, whoa, you know, but there's a lot of jobs that, um, jobs that were primarily dominated by men that started in an era with that, where we had massive gender differences in family roles, the jobs weren't built to be able to have families. And then when you bring women into those environments, if the environment doesn't change, you know, it's it's just bad for everybody. So I think in a lot of industries, we've seen women come in to a primarily male-dominated field. 
their entrance causes friction, but also forces change, which at first is framed as change for women. Like, oh, we want to be able to be moms and coaches or moms and executives. But in the end, it changes work policies, hopefully, that benefit both men and women. I don't like to think of like moms. I like to think of parents. And I feel like everyone does who wants to have children deserves a, the ability to be an active parent and have a career. So for males and females, I hope that the coaching industry adapts and changes to make that easier. Yeah, it's a it's a tough industry. I mean, yeah. we talked about, or you talked about how hard it is to be a coach in the NCA period. And then another thing the article uh, alluded to was that professional coaches, I mean, if you're if you're lucky and you're a Jerry Schumacher and that's your full-time job with Nike, that's great. Or you're Ben yeah. Rosario and you're getting, you know, you're on Hocus payroll because you have this sponsored group. That's great. But there's like half a dozen of those maybe yeah. in the country and that most professional coaches are college coaches who are coaching their athletes for, you know, for free. Um, we've got it. Can we pause? <laughs> no, we've got a special guest here. For- what are you doing in here? No, you're doing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be recording a podcast in here. So do you mind giving me the house for a while? And I'll let you know when I'm done, okay? Uh, What's going on in your brain right now? (laughs) He wants to negotiate. (laughs) Here, let me walk you back to the house, okay? Hashtag real life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry, where were we? We were, um, let's see. Professional level, if you're lucky enough to get. Yeah, so... um, in terms of professional coaching, most professional coaches are college coaches who are doing it for free on the side, or maybe they get some sort of stipend or an individual athlete has an agreement with um, a coach that he or she is working with. And it's just a tough industry yeah. in general, whether you're male or female. And as you had talked about, if you're a female, it's especially at the college level, it's even harder. So it'd be great to see just more professionalization of coaching in yeah. general and more opportunities created for you know, definitely women, but also men who would like to do it as a career. And as someone who does that as part mm-hmm. of his his career, it's a it's a tough thing to do. Yeah. Um, it's hard to scale. Yeah. You know? exactly. It's very time intensive and and most of the time people can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Can't afford to pay for what the value of it truly is. So you sort of if you if you're lucky enough to have a sponsor back it, then mm-hmm. great. But otherwise you can only really coach so many people. Right. You know. It is tough. So yeah, I think when we see more women at the coaching level, we'll see more women at the professional level. It's rare to jump straight from athlete to professional coach, but maybe that'll become more of like a pipeline. But yeah, yeah, like uh, Shalane said, it's not the kind of thing where you're going to get recruited by a brand. Most sports marketing executives are men and white men at that too. It's like pretty tough to for people to break out of their comfort zone and truly be like, hey, let's open a pro team and let's do like an open... um, process of hiring and like try to attract diverse candidates and interview people we don't know. Like it's always someone they know, which means it's probably going to be their buds or a bud of their bud. And so that's how it goes down. Yeah. Hopefully that'll change. (laughs) I hope so. Let's go back to the very beginning of this conversation. You talked about all the changes that are happening right now at Picky Bars. Um, And that's a company that you started with Jesse and with Steph Bruce as well, but Steph doesn't live with you guys. Exactly. Um, (laughs) So how do you guys step away from what's going on at picky bars when you're not at HQ, when you're home with the kids and just going through the rest of your day? Um, we sort of, we've created some parameters, you know, just to try to keep some work-life separation. So 
it's tempting to just bring up whatever problem you're chewing on in your mind, whether that's about your training or work or whatever. And in like a, I'd say quote, normal marriage or partnership Mm -hmm. where you have different jobs, you just be like, oh man, you just bring up what's happening with your boss or coworker when it comes to your mind. But if we did that, we would always be talking about picky bars Mm -hmm. and it's sort of, important it's very important for me in particular to to feel like i have an off switch for it and um and so that our conversations with each other can be about other stuff besides picky bars and so we sort of just learned it the hard way we like went the way things naturally wanted to go and then we ended up like oh my god all we talk about is work and when work got stressful it just made our relationship stressful and so now we ask like Hey, I got a question about picky bars. Is now a good time? Or can I talk to you about it sometime tomorrow or later today or whatever, as opposed to just launching right into it. And then the person at least has a chance to be like, ah, you know, I'm not really feeling like talking about work right now, or I'm sort of, you know, we're eating dinner. I'm just kind of like wanting to chill out. I don't want to get my brain going. So, um, because you can't be just a passive listener when you have the same company. You can't be like, oh yeah, sure. Tell me about your boss. And you can just wear your (laughs) partner hat and be like, oh, that's too bad. You know, (laughs) or whatever. It's not like that. It gets you in problem solve mode always. So yeah, it's hard, but we've, I feel like we've got a really good balance right now. Yeah. I I like that. It's it's such a simple strategy, but it's such a hard thing to do to say, hey, is this okay that we talk about work right now. Yeah. Uh, and for someone to say yes or no, um, can make yep. a huge, you know, that can make a huge difference. I like that. Yeah. It seems really simple, but you're right. It is, it's harder in practice at first. It feels clumsy yeah. and awkward, yeah. but then eventually you're like, oh, okay. Cause yeah. it, what it is, is you're basically saying that I, I can, and he can assert our boundaries around work, Yeah, which is important. And I feel like in any relationship, even if you're not, a, you know, in the same business with your partner to say, Hey, I would like to talk about A, B, and C mm-hmm. right now. And for someone to say, I'm just not in the headspace yeah. to do that at this moment. Can we talk about it later? Totally. Can we talk about I it mean, tomorrow? I imagine that comes up, it comes up for us certainly with like logistics for planning a trip or mm-hmm. a vacation or whatever. There's so much logistics once kids get involved too, of like childcare and this and that. So it's, we use the same strategy for that. It's like, yeah. Hey, sometime we need to talk about what we're going to do about childcare when I go on this trip is now a good time or later? And we'll be like, let's, let's get lunch tomorrow and talk about it. You know? And it's like, Oh, okay, great. we got a plan. (laughs) Love it. It's a great strategy for listeners to take away from this conversation. (laughs) Hey, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston based independent running brand that is inspired by our sports culture and competitive spirit, which is why it resonates a lot with me. They make high quality and highly considered running apparel designed by runners for specific performance needs. They're committed to the pursuit of personal excellence and seek to make products and tell stories that connect and inspire runners on their own competitive journeys. Personally, I love their twilight tops, which I wore for the last two Boston marathons. They're made from lightweight, breathable fabric and a race-ready cut with very subtle designs, which I certainly appreciate. They've recently launched their fall collection, which features styles for racing, training, and even rest days. And they're offering Morning Shakeout listeners a great promotion. If you spend $150 or more, you'll get a free Van Cortland singlet, which is valued at $65. Visit tracksmith.com slash shakeout to take advantage of this great offer. Finally, uh, I'm going to be working with Tracksmith at the Chicago and New York marathons this fall. They're hosting pop-ups at both of those events, and I'm going to be there hosting morning shakeouts. First one is going to be at the Chicago Athletic Association pop-up on Saturday, October 6th 
at 9.30 a.m. I'd love for you to join me. We're going to do three to five miles easy around the city before the race. We'll catch up afterward with coffee, and I may even record a live podcast. So for more details on that, check out tracksmith.com slash shakeout. That's tracksmith.com slash shakeout. Now let's get back to the show. I want to talk about a blog post, well, Instagram post that you had about a week ago, and it was around this idea of you know, what it means to leave the sport better than you found it. Mm-hmm. And it started with this theme of, of kind of recommitment. And early on in that post, you said, you know, two years ago for the first time in 20 years, I didn't recommit to chasing around some of the best athletes in the world. Mm-hmm. And then toward the end of it, you know, you reasserted your commitment. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit more and understand what you meant by that. Yeah. I think, um, anyone I've talked to who has had to retire from elite racing or, anything they've done for a long time, there's a huge transition, right? Because you're supposed to never, never, never give up, right? All the inspirational quotes are about just keep following your dreams, et cetera. But athletics has a timeline, you know, it's age related. And at a certain point, it could be financially related. It's not, unfortunately, not like other careers where you can continue to build your sort of experience over the course of a lifetime, right? So at least not indirectly apply it to your racing. Um, yeah, so I when I decided to not recommit to being a pro racer, that was really hard for me because it was not just letting go of a lifestyle or certain dreams, but it was letting go of what I had built up in my mind to be the ideal platform I wanted. I wanted to make an Olympic team and do well there because I believed it would help me create this platform and the platform is what I needed in order to make this leave the sport better than I found it. And of course, it's easier to do a lot of stuff when you can say you're an Olympian, right? right? It is. It's just easier. People can wrap their head around that. And um, and so it was tough to be like, okay, retire from the sport means I'm giving up my Olympic dream. That will never be on my resume. And I have to f- be okay with that, even if that reduces the impact I can make. And then I think what I ended up with the blog, with the mini blog on Instagram was about was that since then I have remembered something that I knew back in high school, which was that the most intimate and immediate ways you can leave the sport better than you found it are person to person, just like that one-on-one human interaction. And the senior captains on my team totally changed my life when I was a freshman with the way that they taught me running and approached the sport and created an environment for me. And I have that opportunity every single day to do that for the athletes I coach, for the training partner I run with, who is not a professional athlete. Um, and on any Instagram post or tweet or whatever, it's not like I have to do that full time, but I do have tools. And just because they may not have the potential to go global, like on some you know, whatever Michael Phelps level platform, um, doesn't mean that they don't matter. You know, it might be narrower, but deeper. So I guess I just recommitted to that in a public way, um, for myself, but also just to let other people know of the value of their person to person interactions and that you do change the sport in just the way you treat each other and the environment you create during your runs with your friends. Yeah, it's not about the title necessarily, no. even though it, should, it does help um, yeah. in some ways and it can put you on a bigger platform. But the way that you live your life, the way that you talk to people, whether it's in person or whether it's through a blog post, it can be impactful. And it's nice to be reminded of that every so often when you, I mean, you do have that platform, yeah. um, regardless of how 
big someone may or may not perceive it to be. And you, and you hear it from people all the time. It's like, Hey, that post that you wrote, you know, made me rethink this thing in my life or, yeah. you know, the encouragement you gave me at the track workout, you know, help me get out the door the next day. And I think that's a really powerful message to remember or remind ourselves of every so often. Yeah. And I mean, as athletes, we know how much our involvement in our own athletic life can mm-hmm. change our life, right? Everybody who's committed to running or a sport of any kind knows that it's a change agent for you. It has changed like maybe your health habits or the people you hang out with. And then those people have influenced who you become and whatever, right? So, but we don't often think about that our involvement in someone else's running life or athletic journey creates these ripples. Like you can say one thing to a person and they take it home with them to their family or to their office like if it affects their race, that race becomes an experience in their experience bank that affects which goals they make next or how they view themselves or whatever, you know. So these little ripples are actually big ripples and um, we don't get to see where they go. They gain momentum over time. They do. Yeah. yeah. And I take that, I guess, responsibility or privilege seriously now. Um, I, Yeah, it's it's one of the things that keeps me involved in the sport, honestly. Yeah. Did you recognize that when you were younger, that you had this responsibility? No, I didn't. I think my involvement in some um, organizations that aren't running related have taught me that the most. Like I'm involved in a group called World Muse and it's in a um, nonprofit empowering women and girls. And they basically highlight different organizations that are focused on women and girls to drive social change. And they have a conference in Bend. They, you know, a network of speakers across all kinds of different areas. If anyone is interested in it, they should come to the Muse Conference in March in Bend every year because it's phenomenal. But um, I started to see a theme in how all these different people's work was creating these ripples. And most of these industries are not money industries, right? Sport gets kind of clouded, at least it did for me for a while, from this business aspect. Like I needed to run fast to get a paycheck to do whatever. It keeps you very me, me, me focused. And meanwhile, like you're actually, you can take any job, even this most apparent or seemingly selfish pursuit and not make it me focused, right? So it's all about your approach. So I guess I started to see it in in these other women, these other leaders in their lives. And I was like, you know, it's kind of a little bit too late for me to start a new career in social justice work in Afghanistan, but I can learn some things from her work and apply it to the community I already have. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's a super cool thing. Um, where are you at with your own running right now? I saw you ripping a track workout with Shalane Flanagan <laughs> a few weeks ago. You just alluded to your training partner who's not an elite, but that you're presumably running with on a, on a regular basis. And as you had said earlier, you retired from professional running two years ago. So where are things right now? I guess they're still sort of settling in. Like Mm -hmm. if I were one of those sand shakers and you filled it with sand and you shook it and saw what got left in the pan, that's sort of what I'm doing right now is shaking the pan. But um, I know I love running. I also know that I'm not the most durable athlete in the world and especially post second baby and having a really inactive pregnancy, I've got all kinds of aches and pains. And basically I'm at the stage of my running where I'm realizing that I need to be also in the gym. 
things that I thought I could not do anymore after not being a pro. Like I went to PT last week. I was really putting off going to a physical therapist for a problem I was having. Cause I was just like, I am not a professional athlete. I don't want to go to a physical therapist. Like I wasn't injured. I just wasn't working properly. Right. Like I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And, um, and so I just like swallowed my pride and called up the office and made an appointment and went to the PT. It just, I spent so many hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of my pro athletic career, like in the offices and on the tables of really amazing body workers. And, um, but it was painful and traumatizing. And oftentimes in through some of those injuries, it, they just wouldn't resolve for the longest time. It was like so much money and time and just like hopes and, you know, all that. So I just didn't really want to go back there, but I'm having to sort of redefine my relationship with self-care, with recovery, with all those elements that every runner who's a committed runner, professional or recreational, you know, you, you need to have that yeah. in your arsenal in order to like stay healthy and run. At least most of us do. Um, those of us who aren't like gifted with extreme durability. So I'm tiptoeing my way into what my current relationship with running is. I'll be a runner for as many years as my body will let me, but I'll never be... I'll never be chasing extreme goals. You know, I'm sort of not that interested. Yeah. So what are your goals right now? I want to do club cross country on a team and, um, I'd like to be fit enough to have that be a pleasant experience <laughs> and whatever that means. Um, and then I don't know, maybe some road races. I, I'm hoping to do a couple cross country races before club cross either locally or drive out to Portland or something like that. But, um, just have to see, I haven't done that many workouts. So it's, yeah, I get like this horrible cramp actually that I've had off and on since I was 17 and it has come rearing its ugly head again. And I've tried like so many ways to make this thing go away. And, um, it plagued me in my pro career. I mean, it's, it's just the worst. So Always it's, there. it's back and it's back like worse than ever. Like it comes on a, eight mile normal run and I have to stop and walk and stretch it out. So things like that kind of make me first discouraged to set any goals. Cause I'm like, oh, this thing is a pain in the ass. And I, I have certainly tried to figure out what this is in the past. So the thought that I'm going to have new information now doesn't feel very likely, but then um, also makes me very grateful. I retired when I did, because even if I had had perfect preparation, um, and gave it one more shot or whatever, I'm pretty sure this same cramp would have held me back. So it's sort of like, you know, there was one summer in 2011 when I finished seventh in the world. Early in the summer, I raced in Stockholm. I was 14th and ran like, I don't know, 15, 38 or something. Five days later, I didn't get my cramp. So I did get my cramp in Stockholm. I didn't get my cramp five days later in London and I ran 15 flat and won the Diamond League meet. I remember that. And that was the difference of like cramp or not cramp. It's 40 seconds. It's front of the pack or back of the pack, you know? So it's like, it's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And I could see not wanting to relive that even exactly. now when it's not your profession. Yeah. On that note, is there anything you miss about being a professional athlete? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't don't miss much. I have moments of fond reminiscing, but I don't really want to go back there. Like I'd say the things I loved the most that I think fondly of the most are the traveling and staying with 
my friends I would only get to see in Europe, you know. That's how I got to know Roisin McGettigan Dumas, who I now have the Believe Training Journal series with, and um Kim Smith and like all these all these awesome athletes that became buds. And um it's just such an intense experience to be over there chasing your dreams and living in weird hotels and dorms and like out of bags. It's just a really strange thing, but I loved it. I thrived on it. I was, I had this nomadic nature. And so I don't have that now, which I guess is sort of like, yeah, I'd have fun. I would certainly have fun if I got to do that part of it again, but I did get to do it a lot. So I'm also kind of okay not doing it again. (laughs) Building off of that and alluding to something else we haven't talked about yet. Last year, you wrote a letter to your younger self and Mm -hmm. it was geared toward high school Lauren. Coming off of your professional career, if you had to write another letter to like 21-year-old Lauren coming out of Stanford, what would you tell her? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I guess the first thing I would tell myself is that you don't have to become an Olympian for it to be worth it. I spent a lot of years thinking it wasn't worth it unless I made the Olympics. Um, And I think that just created a very, I don't know, high intensity, high stakes environment for racing for me that I don't think actually served me very well, just the kind of athlete I am. And so I would have told myself, you don't have to make the Olympics. You're not going to make the Olympics, but it's still going to be worth it. And I think I would have changed my, my outlook and had more joyful experiences early in my career. And, um, I think I would tell myself that you aren't entitled to anything just because you're fast. So your value actually isn't in your speed, which the way that our Nike contracts were built at the time, they were all around, um, hundred percent of performance based. And so you can start to see yourself as only being valuable in that way. It's a lot of pressure as a 21, 22 year old kid out of school. Yeah. And I thought I could change the industry. Like I was like, you know, that might be the way it's been, but it's not going to be that way because I'm me and I'm going to bring all of me to the sport and I'm going to show people that it's about more than performance, which, um, I guess in some ways I have done, but I couldn't change Nike. Like I couldn't fundamentally change a company, you know, or whatever. Like you, I don't think anybody can, uh, can hope for that. So I think I was a little bit naive there. I really cared about being liked. I think I would tell myself not to care what people think so much. Um, not to chase applause kind of an idea, just be yourself. And, um, what else would I say? I don't know, I guess. It sounds cheesy, but the whole cliche of it's not the destination, it's the journey. I probably wouldn't have even listened if someone had told me that then anyway, but I, I only listened. I really, truly didn't want to listen to people who weren't professional athletes. Like if someone tried to give me advice who wasn't a professional athlete, I, I completely discounted so much wisdom that now I'm like, what are you thinking like that you can learn so much outside of your little sports bubble. And in reading Dina Castor's book, Let Your Mind Run, a lot of people have talked about the positivity side of that book and whatever, but what really struck me was she was reading all these different books during her pro career that were outside of running. They were not running books. She was basically being an interdisciplinary student and picking up things from other 
you know, other areas of study and applying them to her running. And I wish I had done a little bit more of that, but I was a human biology major. My focus was athletic performance. Like I was just so narrow at that age when I came out of college. And I just really thought like, there's the answer is in science. The answer is in experts. There's nothing I can learn really that isn't from science and experts. Yeah. I can relate to that. I was the same way out of school, you know, as a D2 all American was like, if I really focus on this, maybe I can make the Olympic trials type of thing and wouldn't listen to anyone who wasn't at that level, wouldn't read anything that was outside of the running realm. And now what, 12 to 15 years later with, with all of that behind me. And as someone who works with other athletes, most of my, most of my coaching philosophy is influenced by non-running material. Um, and it's because those, I think it's because those life lessons, you know, are completely applicable to running and it's really how you're thinking about it and applying those lessons to your life and your approach. But yeah, you know, as a 22 year old, you (laughs) think you know everything. So yeah, it kind of comes down to like not being as much of an elitist, at least it did for me. And I don't know what, where I got this idea to like narrow my mind so much, but I used to laugh at like yoga and stuff. Oh my gosh, if I would have just paid attention to yoga and meditation a little bit more, like just the simplicity of the power of your breath and grounding yourself. There is so much in just that alone, which um, Aaron Taylor wrote a book, Work In, recently about that, which every athlete should pick up just to make sure you've mastered the basics on that. But sometimes it's like the simplest things. I would just overlook them all and look for the most complicated thing that could help me get better. Yeah, it's important not to get too far away from (laughs) the fundamentals. Um, And it's interesting that you say that about Dina because – reminds me a lot of Elliot Kipchoge, who's going to run the Berlin Marathon tomorrow. And all of the profiles on him are about what he does when he's not training. And he's reading books that have nothing to do with running. Mm. And you listen to him speak, you're like, this guy is, he doesn't talk about running. They're just like life lessons that, you know, happen to make him, help make him the best marathoner in the world, which I think says something. He's, I mean, if you're reading outside of your running bubble, he's, becoming like the best human, you know, he's following his interests, his varied interests. And that makes sense to me that if you're kind of pursuing being your best human, um, why wouldn't your running bloom? I think it's easy to lose sight of that. We want to become the best runner that we can be. And to be the best runner we can be, we need to be the best whole person that we can be like mind, body and and spirit. And I think that's just an important thing to not lose sight of, you know, regardless of where you are in your own journey. Yeah, I agree. Well put. Um, Women's marathoning, not marathoning, women's running in this country is having (laughs) a moment, arguably. I mean, Shalane won New York last year. Everyone knows what happened uh, or what's happened, I should say. For you, I imagine as a fan of the sport, it excites you. Yeah. Um, As someone who is a peer to someone like Shalane, do you feel like on any level you wish you had stayed with it? at all? You can be a part of it or that you even helped, maybe you helped spur it. Do you ever think of that? (laughs) I mean, I'm sure I had my own, you know, influence, whatever that was, the, the ripples we talked about. All of our experiences are kind of inseparable from one another's. We came up together in the sport. So I do feel like a part of it. Um, I don't feel jealous, which is interesting to me because when I was a younger athlete, I would have felt jealous. And I did. I've had periods of my life where I was jealous of Shalane Flanagan and jealous of Kara Goucher and, you know, and sort of felt like there was limited room at the top and someone else's success took away from 
from me as a person somehow. And, um, but now I, I feel validated by their success for a few reasons. One, they came up through the system, same system I did. So it makes me feel like, yeah, I came up in a good system. You know, that's great. I spent, I didn't waste all those years. Like it was worth chasing and there, the tools were there. Like I might not have had that level of result, but I had some great results and, um, I probably didn't need to go to some other grasses, greener place or country to, to be great. You can do it in America. So that feels good. And I believe those athletes are clean. You know, I know them well enough and have seen what they do. And, um, and that's really validating because I chose a clean path as well. And it was frustrating sometimes. I feel like my era was probably the dirtiest era. Like the year I was seventh at worlds, I'm, I try not to hold out hope I'll move up the ladder because, you know, it's, it's a pointless place to put my energy. Um, but I can't help it. I can't help it because every year people's results are reallocated. And, um, in 2021, that'll be the 10 year mark of, of my best world's performance. Um, and so I don't know, I guess I, I feel like things are cleaner now and, we still have, you know, doping is still a problem, but I'm just excited that things are cleaning up, that clean athletes can stand on top of the podium. I think it takes a remarkable day and it takes uh, race directors being extremely, uh, you know, mindful about who they're bringing into their fields and they haven't always been that way. So they're doing it. So I think there's just, it's just good. It's good to see. It makes me feel good. And they're certainly deserving athletes, you know. Aside from doping, having improved since you were seventh in the world in 2011, what else has changed in the sport for the better since that time? I think just the number of training groups. Um, I think the culture of women's sport has changed. We I'm hoping that I was sort of the end of an era, the tail end of an era that's still where we were sort of brought up to be negatively competitive with other women. It took a lot to overcome that, to kind of like embrace that concept of not being threatened by someone else's success to truly root for another woman to do well. And I mean, there's a long history of why women are taught to negatively compete with one another for limited resources and like started with competing for men having to look a certain way fit a beauty standard be a certain weight whatever for this limited resource of a good man um, who could provide for you and whatever and like that is sold to us in marketing and messaging and all these other things in subtle and not so subtle ways I think that that is changing the body positivity movement people are craving authenticity in their media messaging and that's carrying down and then I think I was part of a movement of women who are starting to truly root one another on in a public way with the, you know, um, introduction of social media where our relationships could be put on display publicly for the next generation to see. They could follow, you know, people can follow when um, Shalane tweeted like, you're next to Desi. Like they see that. And those things were happening, I'm sure, before, but we didn't get to see them mm-hmm. in any public way. You had to be in the room, right? And so what we saw was just this combative fighting. Um, and we, and it's not just in sport. We saw it in the work world and whatever. 
So yeah, so I think that it's definitely times are different now. I, I see much more um, like woman up positivity just in general. So I'm really happy for the next generation for that reason. Yeah, I see a lot of just lifting up in general, even amongst men. And I think for yeah. all the reasons that you had just alluded to. And yeah, when you're on the start line with someone and you're competing for a spot on a team or whatever, like, yeah, you're going to try to to beat that person. Yeah. But you're also, you know, in the process of doing that, you're trying to make them a better version of themselves because that's what they're doing for you. And now we're seeing that, you know, outside of, of the race environment and back to the whole ripple thing. Yeah. I mean, I think we're starting to see that really start to gain momentum at the high school level, at the college level, and certainly at the professional level with the examples that you had just alluded to. I think these groups really help with that too. The, the new model is more athletes than not seem to be training in groups. And it used to be most athletes were training alone somewhere, the king or queen of their own castle. And um, and now you're in groups. And so you're you're having to practice that you know, collective mentality on a, on a regular basis. basis. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work. And, and there's, while in some ways the sport economically is no better than it was when I was there, these groups do create a little bit um, more of a safety net for the people that are in them. So there's at least some level where they can feel safe and taken care of. They're not going to not be able to get the massage or the weight room access if they have one bad season probably. Right. And, um, and so I think that helps people. So it reminds me like before groups were a thing, it was easiest to have camaraderie with an athlete from a different country in your event or another event, because you didn't compete for teams against each other. So you could truly like be besties and root one another on. You could do workouts together and smash it. You know, like me and Kim Smith and Roisin McGettigan were from three different countries and there was nothing but love there. Right. Cause like, if she's she's not going to take your yeah, spot. Yeah, she's not going to take, take my take spot. Hers, yeah. And I'm not going to take hers. And and the better she runs, the better I'll run because I'm running with her or whatever. Watching her compete, it like ups the level for me. and makes me want to do that too. And so I think that um, I remember distinctly the way contracts were written when I was a pro athlete. They were very much like you would get reduced if you weren't top three, but they would, you know, one brand would have the top six women. So three of them were going to get reduced. Even if all six of them set personal bests and all six of them bested the American record, three of them weren't going to be ranked top three. So three of them were going to lose money that year. And it makes you view your competitors differently. You're like always going to be holding something a little bit back. And so that's one of the reasons why brand diversity in the sport matters so much. Very like somebody with Saucony, somebody with Brooks, somebody with Nike, whatever. It's a, almost creates that international feeling of like not competing for such limited resources, mm -hmm. you know? Building off of that, are you worried at all for the long-term vitality of professional running in track and field? I feel pretty confident that the level of sport we have now, we can continue to have, which for some people, that's great. I think we'll have, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't continue to have the top three to five athletes in each event in the distance side making really good money or at least decent to really good money. And then a handful of other people able to continue doing it in groups or whatever. Um, I don't see any reason why prize money would go down. Um, no alarm bells are ringing there. I don't feel optimistic that things are going to get really better than that. So yeah. <laughs> going a step further on that, does track and field 
and running need to attract a wider audience or is it okay to exist as a very niche sport? I think it's okay to exist as a niche sport. Um, the thing that we're doing is just, it's puzzling to me, the model that we currently have, you know, we have an amateur sports organization, uh, you know, the Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act through Congress is what sort of governs the USOC and the USOC, uh, it's, its relationships with swimming and track and field and everybody else. Like all of this is under, still under a, whatever it is, 40 year old act from Congress that impl- that has the word amateur in it. Um, and that's obviously not great. <laughs> it grants uh, essentially monopoly power to the USOC and the governing bodies, um, which limits fair competition. And that's always going to suppress wages for athletes. And unless we have a professional sports organization that is not USA Track and Field, USA Track and Field's job is not to build and develop the elite side of the sport. That's like one of 10 things yeah. on their list. And so it's it's not really their fault, you know, that the pro side of our sport suffers so much. Um, it is in some ways, but it's not, I can understand better now sure. that the, like their job isn't like what the PGA's job is for golf. We need a PGA for track for track and field, a professional organization whose sole responsibility and goal and life mission is the marketing and promotion of professional track and field. That has to be, that's what we need. We're literally never going to reach the next level of like public awareness. So given that, some of the decisions that we have made, which is like, okay, we're going to do this in an amateur way and we're going to take this audience of people that do love the sport and just charge the hell out of them to watch their sport that they love 300, whatever dollars a year in order to watch as much of the track as you want. Like, I don't think there is any other sport that costs that much money. Um, Especially when you're trying to attract a younger crowd who yeah. will hopefully stick with this to some degree for the rest of their lives, that making lifelong fans, it's hard to do when you're charging that much It money. is. You need to be able to broadcast it free to attract new people. And then you can go down the whole rabbit hole of how to make it more interesting, right? That's its own thing. How right. do you produce an event to make it more interesting or whatever? But there's plenty of boring stuff on TV that people watch for free. Golf is boring. I'm sorry, it's boring. And there's <laughs> baseball can be boring, like, but people will watch it. It's free. Um, and so we're just going this other direction, which is let's let's make it, hard to watch. Let's make it hard to find or watch for free. Let's make people, the people that care about it then have to put down money, like have enough money and make the decision to put down money so you can turn it into a revenue stream. And then be angry that they're putting that money down. Yeah. They're mad. They're putting the money down. Then they're really critical of the coverage because they paid good money for it. And then the commercial comes on in the middle of the mile at Milrose games. You're like, are you serious? And the commercial is for USATF gear, you're like, are you serious? This is a commercial about buying USATF gear that's interrupting the mile, like the premiere or whatever it is, the 3K, the premiere event. And it just becomes like, this oh. fast moving downward spiral. Yeah. yeah. Like, I just don't see how that's going to go anywhere positive. Like they're going to optimize the revenue of the existing fans. That's what's happening right now. Um, but yeah, it's not a great long-term plan. Yeah. So. We could spend hours on this, but so I'm going to, I'm going to take <laughs> yeah. my, the opportunity now while I have it to, to switch gears and yeah. go back to another one of the things that you talked about at the very beginning of our conversation. That's writing. And that's something I'm very interested in yeah. as well. For you personally, when did 
writing first come into your life or when did you recognize that it was something that you enjoyed doing? Um, for me, writing was a way to claim, uh, I guess, value to myself beyond my performances. So when I made the decision to start a blog and start telling my own athletic story, I was essentially saying, I am no longer going to wait for someone else to decide if and when my story is worth telling and how they're going to tell it. Um, I was very frustrated by coverage of track and field, which I still am, and how not creative most of it is. It's like, oh, so-and-so won or so-and-so broke a record. That's pretty much it. And that doesn't really capture hearts and minds. It's not going to pull anybody into loving the sport, but writing about the journey will. Everybody has a journey, whether it looks like yours or not. So if you can just write about the themes of chasing a, a goal in a way that people understand and, and feel like resonance with, um, then you do affect hearts and minds. And my goal is to give people an inside look at professional running that they wouldn't normally get, tell the story in a way that wasn't normally told. And in doing so selfishly for myself, I hoped to create um, almost like a, I guess, more durability in my presence in the sport. Because if you rely entirely on your body needing to be 100% healthy to make an impact or not, well, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty limiting. But if you can tell the complete story of the sport, the ups and the downs are still part of the story. They're not, the downs aren't an interruption from the story. They're actually part of the story. And every single hero's journey has ups and downs. That's like part of the formula. So it, it changed how I felt about things when they weren't going perfectly. And it connected me to community, which was less isolating. And so I guess that that's a really weird spidery way to answer that question. But um, I had such a positive experience with writing, you know, my blog, asklaurenflesham.com, that I uh, I changed my relationship with writing from what had been like any other student, you do it for a grade, um, you do it ahead of your deadline and it's stressful <laughs> to something I loved. So what does your writing practice look like now? I do sort of like a Natalie Goldberg influenced, um, writing practice from writing down the bones. If anybody's interested in that book, it was a pretty groundbreaking book at the time. I think it's still taught in a lot of writing programs, but Essentially, it's uh, free writing, write as quickly and poorly as possible to a timer based on a prompt. And so I do some of that at least three days a week. And um, and then I'm also working very slowly on a slow burn memoir. But the I try to incorporate the practice independent of like a writing for a purpose, I guess, or a, a bigger purpose. Just keep writing for the sake of writing, just the way running is still worthwhile, even if it's not a race. It's sort of like that. I get out the door to run, you know, several days a week so that on the days when I want to try to do something special with my body, it's in shape versus like waiting around for inspiration and then you're out of shape. And yeah, you know. well, it's, I forget where I read this. Maybe it, was, it might have been in Brad Stuhlberg and Steve Magnus's book, Peak Performance. Was, this whole mood follows action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've got to just get out there and, do it do first. It. <laughs> Don't search for the inspiration. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. With writing, that's something in the last couple of years that you have started to share with other people through the Wilder Running Retreat. Mm -hmm. What was the impetus behind that? So when I wrote my blog, I had sort of this changed relationship with writing, right? I, I realized that 
it was powerful. It could tell a story and it could, it wasn't just for the reader. It actually changed my own experience with running. Writing about running changed my experience with running. It was like totally bizarre. Um, and then as I was nearing the end of my career and I was struggling with some injuries and I became more open-minded to experts outside my little physiology bubble or whatever, I started to, um, go to like Muse conference, go to, I went to this women's camp called Muse Camp. And one of the offerings there was a writing workshop, signed up for it. This woman, Marianne Elliott taught it. She's now my partner for Wilder. And she, um, she just blew my mind in a 90 minute writing session. It was sort of the first thing that had nothing to do with running that I went fully open hearted into and was like eager to learn. And I don't know, it was just, I was a, I was like a blank slate, you know? So I had this really transformative experience with writing in that workshop and the words were really flowing. And then I, I ended up seeking her out. I went to Alameda, California. I like flew there and got a hotel to take her another writing workshop, which I had never done. I'd never like paid money and flown somewhere for anything besides running. That's a big commitment. Yeah. yeah. And I just, it was this workshop called Writing into Forbidden Territory and Lori Wagner and her were co-teaching it. And it was another one of those things. It was like two eight hour days back to back of writing over a weekend. I was like, wow. Like the stories I heard from women, the you know, the writing of true stories and the hearing of true stories, something about that combination shifted, not just how I viewed writing, but how I viewed women and how I viewed humans and like humanity. And a lot of my judgments that I realized that I had started to strip away. It's like, this is really powerful. This isn't just, oh, hey, this makes my running more tolerable or interesting or sustainable. Like this is like life stuff. So from then on, I was like, I'm a writer. I'm a runner who writes, but I'm a writer. And, uh, I want to get better at it. So the retreats came from that writing for uh, writing into forbidden territory workshop where I talked to Marianne. I said, Hey, I want to bring this to the running community. I want to like open more runners eyes to the practice of writing and what it can do and what writing stories and hearing stories can do to your life and like your feelings about yourself and other people. And she was an enthusiastic. Yes. So she flies out from New Zealand twice a year and we host four day retreats. Um, and we have one coming up at the end of this month, actually, it's coming right around the corner out in Maine. So it's the first time I've taken it on the road. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. I love it. It's awesome. So we started talking about what you're up to now. I think we've done a pretty good job of covering that in the course <laughs> yeah. of this conversation. What's next for Lauren Fleshman? Um, the things that I'm really focused on are my coaching, you know, little wing athletics, doing a good job with that and onboarding the new athletes successfully. Um, and then, and continuing to write, you know, write my memoir. And um, I don't have a great schedule yet for how I'm going to break up my day. So that's my first order of business. The athletes are starting to arrive at the end of this month, figuring out what my day-to-day life looks like. I've got my childcare set. So how do I want to divide my day and, um, and my week so that I can accomplish my goals? It can be easy to lose yourself as a coach just like it's easy to lose yourself as a parent. And the writing is going to be a lifeline for me to make sure that I'm continuing to pursue something for myself that's that's different, that doesn't, you know, doesn't rely on running. So uh, yeah, that's that's the goal. And then picky bars, obviously, that's kind of a given in my mind, but it's not a given to the listener, but that's something we've worked really hard to build. And so we're very, very passionate about getting the word out and getting the bars on more shelves and getting more picky club members and doing right by them. You know, we've got a product we're proud of and can stand by. And I would like to lead 
a movement back towards balance. I feel like there's so many fads in diets and I'm just so sick of them. I'm just exhausted by them. Like, you know, you, when you've been alive long enough, I can't even imagine what it's like to be 50 and 60 when you've seen so many cycles of things, but like, I want to pull my hair out. But I believe that real balanced food, it should be a trend. That should always be on trend. So I would like to use picky bars as a way to further that trend in people's lives, whether they're buying picky bars or not. I just would like to use this platform and this company we've built to help encourage people towards balance. I think that's awesome and necessary. And we're seeing more of that with, I mean, Shalane's cookbook that came out, that's a big part of their message. It's not just about the recipes. It's about good, wholesome food and diets, not, not, not a diet. Let's not use that word. Just, just eating a way of eating. Yeah. Just eating, you know, in, in a, in a way that is going to sustain you and that is, you know, very wholesome and that is not gimmicky or hacky of, of some way. And I, and I think, you know, I commend you for that. And, and, you know, it's great to see that coming from you and someone like Shalane, because you do have a lot of influence, especially in, in the sport when, you know, this could be a whole nother podcast on itself with just diet and body image and, and all yeah. that stuff. But those are big issues really in, big in issues. running, um, yeah. especially with, with women, but men too. And it's been something I've been fairly vocal about. So it's great to see that coming from voices that matter. Um, yeah, well, so I commend you for choosing to use the Picky Bars platform to hopefully, you know, further that message of let's eat more wholesome foods. Let's not be tied to these gimmicky diets. It's not about that stuff. So. Yeah. I mean, very few people need those kinds of extreme diets. There are people that do for health reasons. So not fully acknowledging that. And I completely understand and respect how difficult it is to make balanced food choices when you have so, when food is everywhere all the time right. and there's so much to learn. So I love Shalane and Elisa's cookbook, teaching people the skills of cooking. And I also love sort of our approach which is complimentary to that, which is people still need convenience as much as we'd all like to cook every meal. Right. I still want to find ways with picky bars to make convenient choices that are still healthy, that are like, we can kind of do the balance and the work for you and they're ready. So when you can't cook your own food, here it is, you know? So mm. yeah, it's a, uh, it's a journey, but we're going to, we're going to keep trying. Awesome. Yeah. Last question, your professional running career ended two years ago, you're continuing to use the platform that you have, that you've developed over the last 20 plus years Mm -hmm. to continue getting, you know, your message out. How would you like to be remembered, not just as an athlete, but as a whole person? I think I just would like to be seen for who I really am. I mean, that's why I share poetry on Instagram or, um, you know, I talk about my business. I, I just am who I am. And so I think that sounds simple and easy, but it's actually pretty hard to have the person you are on the inside, match the person you are on the outside and match what people are receiving. Right. And so I just, to me, social media is either something I'm not going to do at all, or I'm going to use it as a, a, accountability process for, you know, being who I am on the inside, on the outside. Because if I can do it on social media, 
it's I can certainly do it in my personal interactions with family and friends if I can do it on that public of a space. Um, and, you know, I don't hesitate to block people. <laughs> I don't hesitate to, uh, I think it's helped build my calluses of being liked or not. Like it's a, it's a really good exercise. And if you put out who you really are and someone doesn't like that, you just have to kind of, you either change who you are or who you present or you learn, you build calluses in dealing with people who don't like you. Cause there will just be people who don't like you. Yeah, you don't have to be for everyone. Yeah. Exactly. And it took me a long time to learn that and to be okay, to be really okay with it. So I'm like, now I'm really okay with it. I really don't care. Um, I'm not trying to build some empire where I need to be liked by as many people as possible. I just want to be myself and, and be myself publicly until I don't anymore. <laughs> and then I'll just shut down all my social media accounts. <laughs> awesome. I think that's a great place to wrap this up. Thank you so much for having me. Thank this you was for super having fun. me. Yeah, it was a great conversation. And that's a wrap on this week's show, which was brought to you by Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based independent running brand that celebrates our sports culture and competitive spirit. They also make high quality and highly considered running apparel that I personally use and enjoy. I've run my last two Boston marathons in a Tracksmith Twilight singlet. It's super lightweight. It is very subtly designed and it is my go-to singlet for race day. Tracksmith is running a great promotion right now for morning shakeout listeners. If you go to tracksmith.com slash shakeout and spend $150 or more, they will send you a free, absolutely free Van Cortland singlet, which is valued at $65 and it's one of their original pieces of apparel. I've got two or three of them in my own drawer. I wore them throughout the summer and I think you will love adding one to your own collection. Tracksmith is also going to be at both the Chicago and New York City marathons this fall, and I will be joining them to lead a couple shakeout runs. First one is coming up here very soon in Chicago. It will be on Saturday, October 6th at 9.30 a.m. from the Chicago Athletic Association, and I would love for you to join me for a few miles, followed by some coffee and maybe even a live recording of the podcast. Of details on the New York City shakeout here in a couple weeks, so stay tuned for that. You can check that out as well at tracksmith.com slash shakeout. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening in. Appreciate your support of the show. I love that you share it with others. I hope you continue to do so. And if you would and haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to audio and leave a rating and a review. Only takes a few seconds, but helps other listeners find the show. And it means a ton to me. Finally, thank you to John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He is the man behind the scenes that makes the show sound as good as it does week in and week out. And I am super grateful for all his help. That's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraley, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Mm-hmm.